One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I sort of sat there and looked and and went, you know, surely there's got to be a, a way of, of this happening, you know, a, a way to do this um, because there's so many people that, that do use it as a, as a wealth creation tool. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with property investor, Hadley Nightingale. Following his dream as a young boy, he moved to Australia to work in the agricultural industry before returning back to New Zealand where he dealt with the ups and downs of purchasing properties that ultimately inspired him to help others as well. We find out what Hayley Nightingale's day-to-day role entails and how it ties in nicely with property investment. I'm a buyer's agent in New Zealand and also a property investor myself. So, been in the, the buyer's agency space for about three years now, uh, we're coming up three years and from a property investment perspective, about the same time. So, they sort of went hand in hand to a degree as we got into things. He shares with us what a typical day for him is like where he usually finds himself devoting his time to his clients. My day consists basically of being out there in the market for both myself and my client to acquire property. So working one-on-one with them to sit down, dive into strategy, work through what's really going to get them to the next level and what they're looking to achieve with their property goals. Um, For some people, it's to buy one house. For others, it's to, to build a portfolio and a legacy. So I suppose that, that's the exciting thing is, is working with a range of people to, to create outcomes and get them what they're after. Nightingale goes on to explain how he became a buyer's agent in New Zealand. I'm based in New Zealand uh, and it, it really came about through my own personal property journey earlier on uh, in the piece. So back when I was 20, myself and my parents went out, we bought a, a piece of land and through the, the whole way through the process, went and saw a, a real estate agent who said, hey, look, got this amazing deal for you, which I've now learned isn't, isn't always the best thing to, to hear out of, a, out of a real estate agent's mouth. Secondly, went and saw a lawyer who went, hey, look, all looks good to me. The accountant went, hey, it's 2007, happy days, just go and, go and buy it. And if it costs you a little bit of money at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter. So sort of fast forward that to where we are three years ago when I first started this, was that got back into the property market and sort of realized that there was no one representing the buyer. Anyone that walks off the street goes and meets a real estate agent who works for the, the seller, and then they're there to fend for themselves to, to try and get themselves the best deal. And when you're not in the market every day, it makes it really tough to know where the market's at, what you should or shouldn't be paying for a house, and sort of what you should be looking at. So it was more so around buyer representation that I wanted to go on this journey. I still strongly feel that the buyers are hugely underrepresented in the market. 
Prior to becoming a buyer's agent, he shares with us his upbringing in New Zealand. I grew up in New Zealand in a, in a little town called Whangarei, which is uh, about two hours north of Auckland. So grew up there, decided I was going to become a farmer. That sort of lasted for a couple of years. And then at the same time, towards the end of that, went and bought this piece of land because that was part of the, the grand plan. From there, worked out that I had to earn some more money to cover a mortgage than, than what New Zealand was going to pay for me. Uh, sorry, pay me for. So ended up moving to Australia and worked out in the wheat belt. So driving tractors and heavy machinery out there, which then turned into uh, operating road trains. So I was driving from, from Perth to the Northwest and then transitioned into mining and then uh, sort of to, to where I am now. Been a bit of a, a bit of a chop and a change right through the, the way. Growing up in a small town, he delves into his schooling years. From where we are, the town that we're in uh, is reasonably sized. There's about eighty to 90,000 people that live here. We're on the out, outskirts of town. So, I mean, schooling was, was in Whangarei. I went down to, to a farming school towards the, the lower end of the North Island for, for 12 months after I, I left school at the end of the, um, the sixth form over here. Yeah, got on with my working thereafter. At what age did you actually start going out into the workforce to do those different things? I left school when I was 16, or sorry, 17. I had more or less made my mind up that, that school wasn't for me at about 16. And I struck a deal with my parents that if I got reasonable grades in the last year that I was there, that, that I could leave. So made sure that I, that I did that so I could get out of there. Nottingale tells us about the first job he had once he left school at a young age. First job, I was milking cows on a dairy farm with about a thousand cows on it. So probably one of the, the key lessons from that was learning how to get up early and, and work a long day. So we'd sort of start at get up at 3, 3.30 in the morning to go and get the cows to milk them, hour for breakfast, hour for lunch if you were lucky, and then back out milking the cows again in the afternoon to then sort of knock off at, at 5 or 6 at night. So... They were pretty long days, but I think it put me in good stead to learn what hard work was about and not be afraid of the hours. That is very, very long, especially it's quite labor intensive as well too. I mean, did you have machinery to help milk the cows or did you have to all do it by hand? Well, I had a 50-bar rotary, so the cows would walk on, milk them, and then as they got round to the other side, they'd walk themselves off. So it was like a, a three-hour operation in the morning and, uh, and three at night. Wow. It's still quite a lot of work though. I mean, to be sitting there for hours on end, it's not easy, is it? It was sort of the driving force to try and find something else that was less, uh, yeah, less, less labor intensive. He explains how long he stayed in this kind of job and the direction he took after. I was in the dairy industry in New Zealand for about two years. And then from that, I had a bit of a, a pipe dream, I suppose, when I was younger that, that the wheat belt in, in Western Australia was somewhere that I'd like to go and work for a bit. So when I was 20, I decided that that's, that's where I was going to head. It applied for a job over there, happened to land it. And then basically for the next two years after that, I was working on the farm over there in the winter. Then I'd come back here to New Zealand for the summer season. So for, this, for six months here, six months in Australia. And then after about two years, made the move back to Australia permanently to work on farms over there. After making the decision to move, he shares how long he lived in Australia during this period of his life. Uh, so it was about 10 years. So about a, a third of my life in WA. What's that like in the WA? Good place, mate. It's a good place. I, I really like it. Um, I think I'd still be living there if, if it wasn't so far away from everywhere. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> good people, pretty laid back and um, yeah, had some really good times there. After living in Western Australia for 10 years, 
He discusses the stage in which he decided to move back to New Zealand. I moved back to New Zealand uh, when I was 30, so back in 2015. I went into 2015, started 2016. When I moved back, the mining industry was starting to slow down and the company I was working for started to lay a few people off. So I thought, right, we'll, uh, we'll jump before we get laid off, get back to family and, and people I hadn't seen for a long time. Nightingale explains how he changed industries once he arrived back in New Zealand. So what I did when I came back was I got into into earth moving with a company over here and then moved to Auckland for about 12 months with a uh, safety and training company, which is sort of where I ended up in the mines in terms of uh, safety and training, bit of a flow on from that. And what attracted you to continue to work in that space? I suppose when you get yourself into a position where that's all you've done for 10 years, you haven't got any tertiary qualifications and you've been chasing the dollar, which is, is all good and well. When you come out the other side, yeah, your options are fairly limited. And I suppose for, for me, I didn't really have any inclination to go back and, and sit in a truck or to go and operate machinery. So it was sort of a, a thing of, right, with my skill set, what can I do? And I suppose it also got the mind ticking as well to go, well, you haven't been to university, you know, what, what other options have you got for income? And I think you have to become a little bit entrepreneurial to, to sort of get yourself over the, the hump there of moving forward as opposed to staying stuck where you are if, if that's not where you want to be. Coming up after the break, we hear about Hadley Nightingale's first property experience. I think it was a blessing and a lesson at the same time that with the way the property panned out and how things happened, it really emphasized the point that when you're going to purchase a property, your strategy is the, the key thing. The moment where everything just clicked for him? Uh, amazing moment when that was probably the first house we bought. We walked into the house, the place figuratively smelt, smelt, uh, sorry, smelt of money. There was you know mold on the ceilings, down the walls. There were people walking out going, oh, this house is disgusting. And that one there is probably the, the moment in time we went, right, this is what we've heard about. This is what we've been taught to go and look for. You know, Let's go and buy a house. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Following the arrival back to his home country, Nightingale shares how he was influenced to get into property. Not so much from my parents. My, I think I got my work ethic, most definitely got my work ethic from them, both extremely hard workers. The only property they ever owned was the place that they live on, plus another a section of land that they've also got. But I always remember my mum saying to me that, why would you want to become a landlord when you've got to fix people's toilets all the time? That was her reasoning and her justification as to why you wouldn't want to, want to get into property. So didn't sort of, they weren't into it, but I sort of sat there and looked and went, you know, surely there's got to be a, a way of this happening, you know, a, a way to do this because there's so many people that, that do use it as a, as a wealth creation tool. He delves into the first property he purchased, which ultimately kickstarted his property investing journey. In terms of the uh, the first property, aside from the farm, that was a absolute disaster for a start anyway. The first property that we bought, we got into that by seeking out some mentors. So myself and, and my partner at the time went to a, a Rich Dad Poor Dad seminar and then went through with their mentoring program as well. And then I suppose, because I suppose that was the thing for me at the time with property investment was like I said before, it has to work because so many people do 
so well out of it. But there was the fear and the trepidation there of, if I get this wrong again, I know what the consequences are. So that's sort of how we got into it back in late 2016. Started investing in a, in a place called Palmerston North uh, in, in New Zealand. And it uh, sort of propelled us in, the, in a positive direction thereafter. He goes on to explain the exact time frame he started investing in property. We started in 2016. Moved back to New Zealand end of 2015, November 2016, we settled on our, our first property. How many properties have you accumulated since then? At the moment, we're sitting at three, uh, sorry, what have we got? Uh, we've got four at the moment that we own ourselves with, what have we got? Six income streams from that. After experiencing ups and downs throughout his property investing journey, Nightingale shares with us one of his worst investing moments. Lowest of the low with that was a, uh, a joint venture that we, that we did and we sold. Started out as a pretty straightforward flipping project. Builder was lined up. He, were, he gave us a quote for, for what, the, what the work was going to be. Uh, he was all, all good to go. We got some other contractors in to, to give him a hand and we were sort of looking at about a, a $70,000 renovation so everything started out good and well for, for that it was a, a remote project where we didn't have uh, anyone on the ground at the time and then we were getting updates every week from the builder to say hey look I've, I've done this and I've done that and everything's good and on track but I suppose from a bit of naivety and, and over trust didn't sort of ask for, for photos every week and, and actual video walkthroughs of, of where we were so we got about a month and a half, two months into this when he was telling us he was nearly finished and decided we'd, we'd go down and have a look uh, at the property to pretty quickly find out what he'd said and what he'd done were two very different things. What kind of things did you see? It was things like the wardrobes are, are all finished and everything's good and you walk into a room and there were there were no wardrobes in there. They were still just ripped back to, to studs and nogs. Things like we walked down the side of the house and there's like 100 meters of new weatherboard that had been put on the property that we would never ask for in the first place. You walked in and it was just jaw-dropping on the stuff that had been done and uh, and the, the stuff that, that hadn't been. And then just watched the, uh, the bills escalate substantially from there. So what did you do to get out of that problem? We were very lucky that we had a very understanding JV partner with that. So we ended up having to sack the guy that was on the project at the time, um, get some other builders in there and then just basically strictly manage the build from there to get it over the line. The other thing that we did, because our margins became so tight from a flipping perspective, uh, that we ended up turning it into a boarding house for about 18 months. So or a, a rent by room situation in the, the university town so that we could get some more cash flow back. We were also lucky that the market was, uh, was rising substantially as well at the same time. So. We ended up cashing out of it 2018, but uh, it was after sort of two years of, or 18 months of, of holding onto it to uh, get ourselves in a position where we, where we weren't going to lose money. And I think that was probably one of the, the blessings and the key learnings from it was is that it's all very good and well to go out with the best of intentions to, to go and flip something. Um, but at the same time, do you have a strategy in place to go, right, if the flip doesn't work, can I do it? I think the thing is, is that it was a, a blessing and a, and a lesson at the same time that with the way the property panned out and, and how things happened, that it, it really emphasized the point that when you're going to purchase a property, your strategy is the, the key thing. You can look or set out to go and flip a house, 
if your renovation costs blow out or the market turns, what other options have you got to hold on to that property to make sure that you you're not losing money on the, the back end of that. So that was really the the thing in our in our saving grace, so to speak, was that we had the option of rent by room there to cover our costs and our expenses and everything else until a time where we could cash out of the property uh, and and make the the required money that we that we wanted to without it costing us anything along the way. Despite the disappointing outcome, he shares his initial intentions with buying his first property. The initial plan for that was just to to give it a uh, refurb and then trade it. So uh, carpets, uh, there was a bit of a repile where a repile needed to be done, paint, bathrooms, kitchens. So it was supposed to be about a seventy thousand dollar job all up, um, but obviously with the, the way things that panned out, that didn't, didn't quite end like that. If you didn't actually sell it, do you think you would have held on to that property and still continue to get cash flow from it? Most definitely. So that was sort of where we were looking to go towards the end of it was just to, to buy our joint venture partner out of it uh, and then then keep it for ourselves. So just so, some really rough numbers on it was is that we, we bought it for 210000 uh, we ended up spending all up, including furniture, about 130. So budget went over by 50. In the end, we were we were renting the property for about uh, $850 a week with uh, with rent by room going on there. So it was it was cash it was cash flow positive from the day we got. I guess the question is, do you, do you now look back and go, mm, should we have kept this and buy it out from our partner instead of sell it? It's one of those things, mate, that we do sit there and go. Should have we done that? It was the the next project that we did afterwards. If we would bought that house, we wouldn't have been able to do the the next renovation that we did, which sort of set us up properly for things. Probably one of the, the best deals we've done. Despite the obstacles he faced along his journey, he looks back on the moment where everything just clicked. Uh, amazing moment when that was probably the first house we bought. We walked into the house. There was a, a, the, the place figuratively smelt, smelt, uh, sorry, smelt of money. There was you know, mold on the ceilings, down the walls. There were people walking out going, oh, this house is disgusting. And that one there is probably the, the moment in time we went, right, this is what we've heard about. This is what we've been taught to go and look for. Let's go and buy a house. Uh, so we, we sat down, we did our research. Uh, we did the renovations that we needed to, to do on it. Uh, and then when we rented the, the property out, it, it actually cash flowed and gave us the rental returns that we that we'd figured you know what we were going to get. So I suppose that that first one was the was the aha moment of wow this this property thing really does work from previous experience of having to, to fork out each and every week to feed the farm. As the first house he bought was an ordeal to begin with. Nightingale explains how much he made on this particular deal at the end. That first property, uh, well, everything that we do is, is buy and hold other than the one that we have with a, a joint venture partner. Um, so that one there, we purchased for 250000 We put new carpets in, painted the kitchen, uh, new bathroom, uh, new lino throughout, painted the outside and just gave it a, a general tidy up. The place looked a lot worse than what it actually was. So spent about 35 on it. The revaluation came back in at, at 360,000. Uh, and then also from a, a rental perspective, we rented that property at, at $550 a week to a group of students. So from a, an equity 
uplift, there was about $80,000 worth of equity and a cash flow of around $500 a month um, after expenses as well. So, it was a good little deal to, to kick us off with. He goes into more detail about the deal he sold that was later reinvested into another and how it set his future up financially. That one there was a house that we, uh, that we bought and we cut into two. So, that's sort of my strategy now moving forward uh, is to find properties where there's potential to either cut them down the middle and so turn one house into two or to buy something that, that's got two units, refurbish them and, uh, and, and re-rent them out. So that one there was a, was a house that we brought that had two kitchens in the property. We put a, a firewall down the middle of it so that we had a big unit, a three-bedroom unit and a, and a two-bedroom unit, that particular house. So that one there, our, our costs all in for that were around sort of 500 and six, five, we'll say 550 for round figures. Uh, and then a revaluation on that one of 700. So there was about $150,000 worth of equity uh, in that property. And then from a cash flow perspective, of about $1,300 a month. Oh, wow. Okay. So it really did set you guys up quite substantially there. Yeah, exactly. So there's you know good upside from an equity perspective and also to some, some solid cash flow there on the, the other side of that. After listening to Hadley Nightingale share his story on how he got into property investment, we'll keep the conversation going where he'll talk about the kind of strategy he has in mind for moving forward. I suppose that the key thing for, for moving forward is to make sure that we're getting some solid cash flow with whatever we're buying, but also it needs to generate some equity and some forced appreciation in there as well so that we can keep moving forward. The reasons as to why he delved into property investment? I think the biggest thing for me is it's really been around passive income. I mean, it's, it's quite the, the cliche saying of making money while you sleep. And I think now with the coronavirus and, and everything else that's happening with the world, it just goes to show and it's definitely stood out to me that, that having passive incomes, you know, quite important. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.